Welcome back to CFO Weekly, where we're talking with financial leaders about how to build efficiency in their teams, create time for strategy, and ultimately get results with your host, Megan Weiss. Let's jump right in. Today, my guest is Drew Hamer. Drew is Chief Financial Officer of the global leader in the LIDAR industry, Velodyne LIDAR. He works with the leadership team on financial strategy, investor relations, treasury, and heads the finance organization with forecasting, budgeting, and accounting. As a seasoned finance executive with over 25 years of financial leadership experience at public and pre-public technology companies, he played a central role in Velodyne's raising $70 million from strategic investors, leading the company through the COVID-19 economic downturn with a combination of loans and asset sales, and guided the company through a SPAC merger that raised $419 million, which fully capitalized its balance sheet. The company is now positioned to achieve great financial success. Prior to Velodyne LiDAR, Drew worked at companies like On24, Keynote Systems, Know Now, Introspect Software, Excite at Home, and Sybase. Drew is also a board member of Light Jump Acquisition Corporation. Drew holds a Bachelor of Science in Accounting degree from Binghamton University and a Master of Accounting degree from Florida International University. He is also a member of Financial Executives International, the American Institute of Certified Public Accountants, and the Florida Institute of Certified Public Accountants. Drew, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you very much for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, you have an impressive history as a CFO, and today we're going to be tapping into that experience to speak about a variety of topics, from SPAC transactions to future readying our organizations to process centralization and outsourcing. I'm excited to have this discussion and to learn from the challenges that you've overcome. So let's get started. Looking forward to it. Thank you. Yep. First, tell us about yourself and how it is that you got to where you are today. I have um, somebody who grew up on the East Coast and educated on the East Coast. I moved to Silicon Valley about 25 years ago and have had been very fortunate to participate in a number of different you know, startup as well as public company opportunities that have allowed me to grow into the CFO that I am today and to be able to add a lot of value to the shareholders to the shareholders and into the company by working with management in a number of instances over the years and in, in startups and public companies, as I mentioned. So I, I'm very much a um, I was much mostly a software and internet person, but because of my public company experience, I was also a great candidate for a company like Veladine LIDAR to lead it through uh, to becoming a public company. So as you look back on your career, are there any particular stories or moves that stand out in your mind as turning points? Yeah, you know, there are actually uh, a couple of them. It's a storied career, I guess, in that starting with little things like when I was in college, I was an application programmer, which gave me the ability to understand software and and programming and and work with the uh, computers and the hardware. And that became very valuable as I came to California because one of my greatest opportunities was with a company called Sybase, where I was doing the global consolidation of the financial statements, which required that I understand everything related to the economics of the business, but in, in, in that historical perspective, that is the accountant's perspective. And then it also lent itself to giving me a chance to becoming a product line PL controller, which is really a financial planning and analysis job uh, outside of accounting. So now you're projecting the, the future and that was the kind of background skill that I needed on both sides, really, when I went to a startup where I got to basically build everything out, um, a company called At Home Corporation, and 
really had the great opportunity to build out all their financial information systems, as well as set up the processes and procedures to make the capability to do all the planning and forecasting possible in an automated fashion, which led to eventually becoming a CFO at, at a company called Keynote Systems. They brought me in originally as the controller, made me the CFO. And the transition of going from being somebody who does a lot of accounting to being a CFO is unique in that accountants are really kind of writing history where CFOs are talking to the investment community about the, the business model and the business plan and helping them understand but where's the value of an investment and how they you know, will be providing a return to the shareholders. And after five years there, I uh, left to go back to the startup world to try and become a gentleman who would uh, take a company through an IPO. I was at a startup for about five years as we pivoted it to a SaaS business model from the perpetual model, which also was important because uh, that's such an incredible business model in today's um, economic models that people use to drive shareholder value and um, left there uh, for a couple of years and ended up at Keynotes uh, here at Velodyne LiDAR. Sorry that um, you know, we were able to finally lead this company through a, a liquidity event that was a, you know, basically taking it public. So speaking of that event, uh, you recently participated in a transaction involving a SPAC. So first, tell us how SPAC, a SPAC works. Well, a SPAC is... Um, it works much like a merger, actually. So in its initial states, it's the two companies. One is a blank check corporation, what they call it. So the SPAC itself is an entity that was created with just cash. And it basically takes all the money and it puts in a trust so that the investors can't lose their money, per se. And they get some other incentives as, as shareholders in the company. And then there's a small group of people who lead with a responsibility to merge that entity into another company that is an operating company. So they, they, they embark on a process of evaluating different operating companies and determining somebody that would be a good candidate for the funds that they, they have in trust. And then they start a merger discussion with that company to decide if it would like to merge and become fully funded with the capital that's in the SPAC. Now, the other side of it that's attractive for the operating company is that the SPAC is a publicly traded entity. So once the funds are received and the commitments are made by the various investors, they IPO the company. So it becomes a, a publicly traded stock. And so after the merger, the entity that was the operating company could go from being a private company to being a public company. And that's really a situation we had with Veladine LIDAR, where we were a operating company with a great, op, you know, great story that we thought the public investors would be interested in. And so when we, we had a chance to speak with the different SPACs and found some that really understood our story, and eventually we found Graph Industrial, which was intrigued by our story. They understood what we were talking about and felt that the merger of the two entities would be the best thing for their shareholders as well. We embarked on a merger process, which would be similar to any other company merging with a public company, which required all the SEC filings, and you would go out and meet with investors and obtain their, their consent in order to complete the merger. Now, it's a little more complicated. If you'd like to get into more details, I'm happy to do that. But that's it in, in uh, kind of in a nutshell. Yeah, it's such an interesting route. And, and it was something I'd never heard of before you mentioned it, actually. So why this route rather than a traditional IPO? Yeah, this is a really important discussion that had to take place when you were looking at evaluating the IPO versus merger versus other options, in fact. And the beauty of the SPAC is it actually provides an opportunity to 
do two things. First, you can talk to the investors, at least at the time, SEC is tightening up a little bit on this right now, but I think it'll still be some, a part of the process. When you do a merger, as a, when a public company merges with a private company, they have to talk about why the, where there are synergies and what, how it changes forecasts and, and op, business operations. So through the SPAC, we were able to talk to people about you know, what the future looked like for the company and why this investment would be beneficial to them. Whereas in a traditional IPO, you work with a sell-side analyst and they look at your historical financial statements and they put together a model that, it, that has assumptions about continuing trends based upon the historical financial statements. And they go out and talk to the investors and get them interested. So the difference between these two models is if everything is moving, you know, if you have multiple years of, of high growth and that's the expected continued trend, the IPO would be the preferred route. However, in the case of a company like Validon LIDAR, we actually had a major business transition taking place where we were an operating company that had traditionally sold our sensors on what we would call spot buys or, or people just come in and buy one or two, and then we would sell them uh, to them on the spot. But the, tr the transition was customers are now coming to the company and asking about setting up a traditional industrial supply chain agreement. And these agreements usually are three or more years, and they, they will talk to you about, here's how many sensors I'm going to need. And then they, they enter into a contract that's a, based upon you know, a cost volume curve that allows them to be confident that they're going to have this LiDAR sensor as one of the components when they start manufacturing the solution that they're, they're building. That is a major step stone for any company because it gives you predictability and reliability and visibility into what your revenues are going to be in the future. So you go from a situation where you're kind of manufacturing to anticipated to demand to being able to manufacture to contracted demand potentially. And what really is exciting for investors is to be able to get in on the ground floor of something like that and be able to participate in, in the upside that's going to come in the coming years. So it's a little bit different from having been on that trajectory for a few years to being at the inflection point and getting ready to start making that transition. And that's why this was a good story to do through a SPAC. In addition, with the SPAC, there was one other nice thing about it that is a new thing with SPACs. The SPACs have been around for decades. With the new thing is you, before you even agree to the merger, you have a conversation with public company investors and ask them if they'd like to enter into a, a pipe, a private investment in a public entity, which is basically an investment in, in the SPAC itself, not necessarily in the operating company. And the participation of people in that pipe usually serves as a validation of whether public investors would be interested in investing in the company post-merger. That's a lot better than going out and doing what they call the test the water meetings in an IPO, where you're, you're out and you're asking people about whether they think this would be interesting. And then when you start the IPO process, you're on the road for about a week, maybe two weeks, and you're going around you know, doing speed dating with people. And as you walk out the door after a half hour meeting, you're asking them to invest you know, millions of dollars. So that the SPAC also offers an opportunity to work with public investors to help them understand the story, to get their investments so that they can feel confident that they're making a good investment um, for the long term, hopefully. And um, it gives the company, you know, gives management uh, greater confidence in the support of its investors. So there are a number of different variables there. So you've got the ability to gain, gain shareholder approval. You get a chance to uh, be fully capitalized as a public company. You are uh, publicly traded. So you have a second currency. In addition to the cash that you're capitalized with, you also now have publicly traded stock. And then, of course, you know, but you do take on the burdens of being a public company.
So do you think we're going to see more of these types of transactions? Yes, I, I think SPACs are here to stay. I think you know, it provides yet another venue for people to become a public company. So you've, you, we already talked about the IPO. Now you've got the SPAC. And then the other liquidity event that tends to be the more common is, is the merger into another operating company. So I think it, it just it gives people another tool in order to ensure liquidity for shareholders, as well as provide you know, valuable returns to those shareholders. And, and looking back at your experience, what advice would you give others who are considering this route? You know, I mostly I'd give them um, operate, you know, advice around if you do a SPAC, it's not exactly like an IPO. There are certain features that are like the roadshow necessary to raise the pipe, as well as an ongoing roadshow to ensure that the investors in the SPAC will will vote in favor of the merger, as well as preferably people will continue to trade up on the stock in the public markets so that those shareholders will also not redeem their their shares uh, in the SPAC. So I think it's really just being thoughtful about understanding, you know, the SPAC and maybe, you know, reading up on the different stages of how it works and, you know, being careful to understand that if if you've got this inflection point, this is a great route to take. But if you have a more traditional business model that's just kind of been growing and, and you want to you know, wait a few years before you uh, become a public company, a traditional IPO may be the better option. And switching gears a bit, I know, um, you know, when, when you and I, spoke last, uh, we spoke of COVID. Of course, it's a topic on on everybody's mind right now, but Mm -hmm. how has the business world changed forever? I think probably the the one that we're all very familiar with, so it sort of becomes the obvious answer is that I think the return to the office as a a full-time activity may be a thing of the past. The world had already started moving, you know, we, over the years we've moved to, you know, getting dressed up to go to work to casual days. And then I think we were moving towards having, you know, like one day work a week from working from home. And I think the, the, the transition now is that it's all it's created a situation where we'll probably work more days at home and fewer days in the office. However, I don't think it w- will be a situation, at least not for all roles, where people don't have to work in the office at all, because there are definitely needs for people to meet and have a meeting of the minds and talk in person. So there's definitely value in that. So I think that'll continue. Now, as it relates to kind of finance functions in my particular area in the company, I think it's given us a validation point that we could do a lot of our work remotely. And the tools have actually matured to a stage where that's been made possible so that not only for the, the local accounting functions, but on a global scale, the concept of having kind of a, a, a decentralized finance or accounting function is very real now, whereas before, and it's been tested because like our accounting function, we barely skipped a beat when the transition to move home took place. And it makes you start to think about, now, how should we be doing this going forward, given that the accounting systems all can be accessed online, the payroll systems can all be accessed online, the treasury functions can all be accessed online. So anywhere in the world from an airplane for that matter. So it'd be, I think it's going to really help people make a transition to being more accepting and evolving towards the other options that are available now to having, you know, setting up finance and accounting functions. And speaking of systems, what technologies should businesses being investing in to ensure that they're, they're ready for this new future? It's not as much. Uh, so there's, there's kind of two questions. There's the strategic question, 
of investing and ready for the future, it's, it's there's the kind of the traditional IT side of the house. And for that, the company should be setting itself up. I think even as, as I was listening to someone yesterday, they, there are companies out there that have already accepted the fact that their employees will be working from home as well as from the office. And so when you set an employee up, it's, it used to be you get a laptop and a monitor for your screen and your keyboard and everything for your desk in the office. And now it's you also get a screen and a desktop and, and a setup for your home. So that's a very basic kind of a, of a you know setup for technology. But more importantly, the whole infrastructure of the IT system needs to be thought through to make sure that it enables the remote access. So there'll be security. There'll be um, you know the, the types of systems that allow you to log in and how to make them faster and more efficient over time, so that you can you know be more confident in logging in both from a security basis as well as you know how, how rapidly you'll be able to work and access this, these systems. There'll be probably different protocols where you require people to treat, try and keep more of their files on the corporate servers and set those set up up so that it's it's a faster and more efficient process than maybe it is today. And so I, I think it's really just that uh, a slight rethinking. It's an ev- evolutionary state of kind of where things were getting with people using, you know, online messaging services and things like that. I think each company will come up with its own set of protocols to enable people to be working remotely as kind of a first priority versus working at their desktop as a first priority. And uh, I, I've read a lot about accounting talent, finance talent, how. Um you know, how hard it is to attract talent. And I guess the one benefit here is that it, this really opens up the, the globe for attracting talent. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, that's the other side of the systems conversation, because there are systems like NetSuite and others that are out there now, and they're completely accessed by uh, an internet browser. And the impact, uh, for example, a company like Velvet and LIDAR, we will be able to use NetSuite and we could have people processing transactions anywhere in the world. So the accounts payable people, the accounting staff, they could be anywhere in the world. My preference is that, of course, the technical accounting people are somewhere near corporate headquarters because you really need to be able to access them for conversations. The people who are doing your SEC reporting need to really understand SEC and be local as well. But for some of the other processes, and interestingly enough, people can process uh, an AP transaction into these accounting systems um, NetSuite might be a great example, and you could be using a NetSuite accounting system anywhere in the world, uh, India or Germany or China. You can process the transactions into that system. And then the way the world has evolved, you could have a relationship with some of the banks that have local branches in each of these countries. And then they have a, a centralized portal where somebody, say, in my case, in San Jose, can access that portal just like they would in the United States, where you take your transactions from your accounting system, you upload them into the bank when you've approved them, and then you send out the payments electronically. You can do this on a global scale now. So you could have one bank, just like you have one accounting system all over the world. And by the way, these accounting systems have evolved so that they have local language, they have local currency, they have all of those, pretty much all, all of the major systems have this. And, and they allow kind of from a, a startup to a big corporation to use their systems. But then you can have that match with your, your treasury system. So your banking systems could all have you know, a branch, a local branch. So instead of taking the money out of your US entity and moving a US checking account, you take it out of the entity in your accounting system and make your payments out of your India checking account. In addition to that, a lot of the payroll services have also moved to a model where they're they really started to really do a better job of having local 
people who could process your payroll. So now the people who are in, say, San Jose can also manage the payroll functions. Somebody uploads their payroll information, maybe locally, but then the review and the distribution of the funds is managed out of a centralized function. So you get that. And then on top of that, there are other services, these systems for you know collecting and paying expense reports are also now international again you know somebody logs in locally they're they're in a local uh, language so they get they're localized they call it so the systems have evolved so nicely and eloquently so that a, a well thought out finance and accounting function can really be run from a central location with a handful of really, really smart people who just understand the whole picture. And then you don't have to have separate accounting teams, if you will, um, in each of your subsidiaries all over the world. And instead, you just have kind of the simpler functions that are done out in the field. And in fact, you could have it set up so that they end up being backups to others uh, in case there's something happens in the United States, your team in say India could pick up some of that work and keep things going while you know the the U.S. function comes back up and gets running again. So very interesting dynamic that has been 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 enabled by the internet, by people developing these systems over the last you know 22 decades or so, and so it, it's making the company more efficient, giving it more flexibility as well as greater level of confidence to maintain operations you know without disruption. Yeah, technology is such an amazing thing these days. It's hard to think cool. back 20 years ago to, to what things must have been like. Yeah. Or were well, like. Yeah, you know, it's uh, it's funny. I, I'm actually, I got enough gray hair on my head to remember what it was like before I had a cell phone. So that's uh, a, quite a transition in life. And and just being able to be part of seeing these transitions of the, of the technology has been very exciting. And really, you know, people were always dabbling with the ideas that I was just discussing and trying to decentralize and, and centralize and things. But this technology has made it much, much easier. So the, the technology companies have been listening, they've evolved, and it's just gotten so much better that it, it almost makes it so that it's really hard to argue against doing these things. So when a CFO is considering centralizing processes, where should they start? Well, they need to actually have an understanding of, of what the processes are or what they could be. So there there's needs to be some level of a vision of where they're going to go. So start starts with prior experiences, maybe what you've seen and what you've done. And then when you're, whether you're evolving an existing system or whether you're setting it up from scratch, you really start with kind of the vision. And then you have to have a realistic perspective of how you're going to roll that out. So you know, in any company, you're going to need an accounting system. So you would start with one, preferably that that offers favorable pricing for one location, but can scale and grow to the multi-locations. And when you think about multi-location, you're looking at a system that has multilingual, multi-currency, and all of those things that also allows consolidations. And then you also, you know, the the kind of around the system kinds of processes that I just mentioned. So you're going to need to be able to do payroll. You're going to need to be able to do your banking. So you, a lot of times, normal company in the United States is startup. You might use the local bank that you have, which is the, the best service you're going to get, honestly. But as you start to go global, then you have to plan on a transition to the larger bank. The reason why you usually wouldn't use the larger bank is they do cost more money if you're not using all of their features and functionality. So there's a crossover point where using the larger bank and having all the different entities makes sense. And you really need to kind of plan to make those transitions, which isn't as, as hard. The accounting system is probably the, the heart of, a, of an accounting function. And that's where it would start. And then uh, you can add these other systems around it as they become necessary. 
And in your mind, are there any drawbacks of centralization? There's a little bit of a risk because a lot of people aren't trained up to understand how it works yet. So it becomes a little complicated and confusing. And you really want to make sure you have, you know, it's not an area where, where you're looking to get the cheapest people working for you. You're looking for the smartest people and you pay them more because you're not, you won't have to hire as many on a global scale and being able to, you know, prepare, understand and communicate that particular algorithm, you know, is really what makes it hard. And then, you know, getting your people working and, and functioning so that they actually are executing against the vision is, is the part that could be challenging because you have to stay on top of this stuff. And how did you decide what should be centralized in-house versus what maybe should be outsourced to a third company service provider? Yeah, you know, this is part of the, the years of experience that I was talking about earlier. I, I, I've actually... Back in the day, I was at a company called Sybase, and we were using kind of a client server product where we were forcing people to, to access our mainframe via their um, PCs. Um, this was before the internet. And um, I got a chance to see you know, how a, a function where the local accounting's done in a multi-currency, multilingual system and actually managed it myself. So that was really a formative experience for me in understanding and helping to make these decisions. And... You know, as I've been around for a while, I, I saw when people tried to do the hoteling with some of these systems like PeopleSoft and others um, back in the late 1990s uh, and early 2000s, and then have really, you know, embraced the transitions to the companies that are completely online, of course, because being online has made it so that these systems are very fast and very efficient and very effective. So, you know, how do I make that decision was, was part of the experiences that I've had over the years but it also gives me an understanding. So when I can communicate the vision to the team who, you know, if they're just coming out of college, they don't, they don't understand this. Um, there's some amount of, they're just going to have to trust me and then making sure I stay engaged with them as they, they do the learning. You know, you have to train your people and make sure that you have enough of the right people in the right places with the right skills. You know, it, it is a process that requires, you know, the patience and the vision in order to put it in place. And that's really what's been driving a lot of my, you know, I've just over the years, I've realized that, this is only getting better. It's an amazing situation. So I've had the benefit of growing up with it. And looking back at your experience, when you're um, considering operational improvements, do you think it's better to do it incrementally, like one step at a time or like the big bang approach? Yeah, this is actually, this is a conversation about risk, right? So how risky is it to do the big bang or, or the flash cut is really what most people think about it as versus the transitional approach. And it, it becomes kind of a case-by-case -case situation. And it also is a function of if you're a public company or a private company, you know, private companies have the luxury of if they're not done, people can wait. Whereas a public company, you're mandated by the SEC to have certain filings completed and done on time. So the risk factor goes up substantially um, if you have a problem in a transition to a system. So as a private company, you might do a flash cut. It might be a smaller implementation. And, and so it really just makes sense. Whereas if you're already a public company, you want to do things potentially in stages so that you can have confidence that you have backups and ability to meet the mandates of being a public company, which are primarily focused around um, communicating with the public investors and meeting your SEC filing deadlines. That's true. It, it does come down to risk and how much people are willing to accept. Yes. And, and it's interesting how sometimes people don't really understand, like they, they accept a risk that they don't fully comprehend. 
Yeah. Um, but it, it cutting over system, you really need to listen to the people who've done it. Yeah. You know, hopefully you're working with people who've done it a couple of times and they're, they're going to tell you about, you know, how long it takes and where the pitfalls are. And you got to be ready to make the investment because if you're going to try and do it on the cheap, you really set yourself up for a higher you know, risk of failure. And lastly, as a CFO, what is keeping you up at night right now? Yeah, you know, the thing that keeps me up at night is this ever-changing COVID situation. It's been, you know, really everybody was hoping that the world was on track. We all get vaccinated and then, you know, the world would open back up again. It's, it's a little bit perplexing to think that there are people who aren't vaccinated out there. And as a result, you know, they, they've extended the amount of time that it's going to get the world to open back up again. Because that's really challenging, uh, as well as some vaccines in, in other countries, not in the United States. We're very fortunate you know, with the Pfizer and the Moderna and the Johnson and Johnson vaccines that we have here. But in other countries, they've kind of developed their own vaccines. I'd use China as an example. And, you know, where we thought China was doing really well and opening back up, it, there's just a steady stream of now they've locked down this town and you can't get in or out. Uh, it still takes you know, a number of countries around the world. They don't have the vaccines yet. So you're trying to figure out for your business, when are you going to be able to you know, really get over there and, and market and sell and, and you know, transact your business. I mean, it's a very challenging mar- you know, world if you have to have people constantly, you know, spending two weeks in a hotel room while they wait to make sure, you know, give people confidence that they don't have and then not bringing the uh, virus into their, into their, uh, into the country they're going into. So I think that's probably the biggest challenge for me right now is trying to understand, you know, how's this going to ebb and flow and how's it going to affect, you know, develop and light our business going forward. Yeah, it definitely feels like a case of taking two steps forward and and one and sometimes two steps back. Yes, yes. And it's a little bit, and it's scary at the same time. You know, I think um, very impressive what the the scientists have done in developing these vaccines. You know, I, I remember early on, I was reading about, you know, the Spanish flu back in the, you know, in 1908 or whatever, 1918. And, um, you know, it took them about five years to actually get an effective, you know, vi- uh, vaccination. And the fact that we had one in in, uh, in under a year is, is rather remarkable. And the, the ability to continue to address this is also going to be rather remarkable, even though we'll take it for granted. And so, you know, I think the world had gotten to a stage where we were so, you know, it was the global economy and we were all very, you know, able to move about freely around the globe and even in our own communities. And now to be in the situation where, you know, you're cut off again and you, know, you have to wear your mask every time you go out. So the ability to read a person's face is taken away. You can read their eyes now, but you can't read their smile on their face or, you know, things like that. You know, it's it's sort of been, been a real challenge for us to all readapt to um, getting going again. And it really feels like this could be, you know, this, is, this could be a generational transition till, you know, the world, hopefully the world gets back to being that global economy. But I think for a lot of people who are alive now, it, it's uh, definitely a memory that's going to be that's going to stick for you know the rest of our lives. Yeah, it's true. We took so much for granted. It was wonderful. It was a great time. <laughs> <laughs> Drew, thank you so much for being my guest today. Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here, and look forward to talking to you again, Megan. Thank you. Yeah, very much. I've really enjoyed speaking with you and hearing about your experience and all of the resulting insights. And I appreciate your time today. And I wish you and Belladine all the best in the future. Thank you very much. Have a good day. Yep. Thank you. 
If you're ready to boost efficiency and streamline your accounting processes at significant cost savings, it's time to talk with Personiv. Their people-powered solutions have transformed the delivery of back office tasks and general accounting functions for decades, partnering with clients to provide everything from accounts payable to payroll services. See what Personiv can do for you by visiting personiv.com. You've been listening to CFO Weekly presented by Personiv. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to hear all of our episodes. Want to learn more? Check out personiv.com. Thanks for listening.